All right, there we go. Hello, everyone. How's it going, team here? And uh, let me just check if I... Yes, I did unmute the microphone. This, this is my phobia now. This is what I have to live with. Welcome to the BXJS Weekly, a JavaScript news podcast, bringing you all the best news of the week. And uh, today we have episode 28 already. We've got... Quite a lot of things today, um, a lot of articles, some releases, not a lot of major ones, and a bunch of libraries and demos that I wanna show off, along with some pretty interesting and silly stuff to close this off. So let's, um, we do have a lot of articles, so let's get started right away, I would say. And um, the first article we have is uh, hoisting in modern JavaScript, let const nwar learn how hoisting really works in JavaScript. So if you, just started learning JavaScript, or maybe you are, you know, somewhere in the beginning of the process or still figuring out all the nitty gritty of the JavaScript and underlying concepts, then, well, ho ho let me try that again. Hoisting is one of those concepts that you absolutely have to know if you want to work with JavaScript, right? So this article, um, if I would say so, explains it quite well. So it goes uh, on explaining what hoisting is, how does it work for functions, how does it work for uh, variables, how does it work for the new let and const defined variables, what are the lexical scopes and you know stuff like this. Uh, if you already know what hoisting is, if you already are familiar with the basics of JavaScript, then you are likely won't find anything new in here. Well, if not, then uh, it is quite recommended read. All right, continuing, we got how Discord handles two and a half million concurrent voice users using WebRDC. This is um, another article from the Discord developer team. Uh, if you never read them, if you this is the first time hearing about their blog or you know the fact that they're actually writing articles, uh, I would highly actually recommend uh, looking at their blog because they have more than one really good article, a really interesting article on uh, bringing the services and scaling them to the millions of users, basically. So this time around, they talk about using WebRTC and uh, concurrent, uh, basically scaling it to a few million users. And as usual, this is not sort of low level article. You won't really find any, you know, source code here. There are some snippets that sort of outline the general approach, but it is mostly about architecture, about approach, about how do they use the backend, how exactly do they structure the whole thing to scale and, you know, things like this. So if, if this sounds interesting to you, then do check it out if you want more hands-on experience or you want the source code, well, you won't really find it in this article. But uh, then again, you know, I, I think it's really interesting to read about the general things like, you know, how do you handle failovers in voice servers and uh, how do you operate at scale and so on and so forth. So it's like, there's even some uh, pretty terrifying numbers to be honest, but uh, yes, uh, it is quite good as usual. Once again, if you haven't read Discord blog, highly recommend it. They do have some amazing developer stuff in there. All right, continuing, we got RxJS operators for dummies, fork join, zip, combine latest and with latest from. So this is an article explaining those exact four operators in RxJS. So if you're working with RxJS, you know that it has incredible number of operators in the library itself. And uh, some of them are, might be a bit hard to actually understand. And the, I know that at least it was for me, right? So when I just started, I think it took me like a few weeks to grasp some of the concepts like fork join and zip and, and combine latest. 
So it was a bit hard. So articles like this really help. Um, hey, Mikkel, welcome to the stream. The cool thing about this article is that not just it explains what the operators do, but it also does it in a very simple manner, as in, you know, it actually has the basic um, analogy using the printing t-shirts and uh, people like depicted as various people. I don't know what is, yeah, there you go. So it was loading. So you actually get nice GIFs that uh, show you what exactly happens and how exactly the stream is then combined into the final output, you know. So if you're working with RxJS, or I guess if you're just starting to work with it, and having problems with the fork join zip combined latest or with latest from do have a look at this article, it will get you up to speed pretty quickly. I mean, those are really good explanations. And uh, it's I, I would say it's really clear what the operators do even from the just the gifs that depict what they do really it's like, you know, just look at that. And if you need there's a bit of code here as well. So quite quite cool. Yeah. Okay, next article we got is building Vue.js applications with TypeScript. Um, the thing this is like interesting thing I noticed that TypeScript tends to be the language that is mostly used by the guys who write angular right because they're kind of hard locked in it but obviously there's a lot more people who use it but in sort of front-end worlds uh it's typically people who talk about typescript they talk about angular well this time around there's um author decided okay let's try to or let's actually apply typescript together with vue.js and see how that works out uh hey bakao welcome to the stream so the article uh, explains exactly how you can, uh, first of all, how do you set up the basic Vue.js project using the Vue command line interface in this case? How do you then create a TypeScript project on top of that? And how do you exactly uh, bind together the TypeScript and Vue.js uh, using the additional you know, TypeScript definition files? How do you split up the component from the template itself using the HTML imports and stuff like this? So if you're working with Vue.js and you was interested in um, actually using it with the TypeScript, then do check out this article. It is a pretty good starting point. So it does not go into you know any in-depth um, things that basically you know what advanced project layouts or anything like this. It's very basic, but it will give you a good starting point for a good uh, Vue.js TypeScript-based project. Right. Um, next thing we got is the hilarious misadventures of being a platform downstream from your language. The article from Miles Borins, who is a Node.js uh, TSC director for the past year, I think. Uh, and uh, basically he talks about so there's JavaScript, right? And uh, is basically a combination of a language virtual machine and a platform that makes a runtime that executes your code, right? So there's like a Chrome and V8 and JavaScript is language. And uh, there's the language itself. So JavaScript is a standardized thing. There's like stages and process for that. Then there's the engine and then there's the platform. And then we have this thing that is called Node.js that just lives completely separately from all of that, which just is really, it has a you know completely different process to um, accepting and publishing and updating the APIs, which is something totally different. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very amusing to read it because you know, this is obviously the perspective of a person who's been basically leading the uh, technical steering committee of node for the past year and he talks about what the technical steering committee does and how does the node sort of integrates into this whole 
area. So if you're interested in this sort of meta discussion or I guess knowledge of the one of the guys who is basically leading the node right now, right? Or leading the committee leading the node, I guess that will be more correct. Uh, correct error, it's the right word here. Sometimes English is a bit hard. Okay, but yeah, so it, it's it's very, like I said, a large article, you know, it's like maybe two or three pages at most, but it is very interesting to read about, you know, this whole perspective and, and how they actually look at that. Okay, let us continue. The next article we got is a sync rendering in React with Suspense. So is the React Suspense gets closer and closer to releasing, you know, it's, it's coming quite soon. Uh, we are probably going to see a lot more articles talking about it. And even now, you know, we already see like one, at least one of them, I think every podcast. So every week, maybe even more of them when they, when this stuff releases, but it's, I think it's, it's an amazing uh, technology and it's really interesting to see how the real world um, components will apply it. So, okay. Back to the article, the article, first of all, talks, okay. So what is the suspense? Why are we actually going to, why do we want to use it instead of, existing solutions there's a simple demo of suspense here if you want it with the github code and everything included and uh i think my cat is moving the chair another room but okay i'm just going to ignore that uh yeah so and uh from that basic demo the author builds out more advanced uh demo that basically shows more or less the same that if you watch the suspense uh preview on one of the React workshops. I think it's like quite some time ago, actually, like half a year ago, maybe even more. This more or less builds out the app that is quite close to that basically shows the movies that are dynamically loaded with the placeholders and delays and uh, fallbacks and all that kind of stuff. Um, so if you are, if you already heard about suspense and basically know what it is and you know approximately how it works then you won't really find anything useful in here, but if you don't know about it, if you want to know about asynchronous components and asynchronous loading, then this is a really good starting point for it because it will walk you through all the basics. All right, so let us continue. Um, next article we got is setting up a component library with React and Storybook. I know that a lot of you guys have been asking me in the Discord chat about the Storybook and whether this is something that I've actually used and you know can comment on. And uh, well, you know, as being not exactly the front end guy, I haven't actually used it. I mean, I poked around and, you know, checked it out and it looks like a nice tool, but I never had a need for anything like this because we don't really have any, you know, UI component libraries in house or whatever. We just typically use the existing stuff because we are not UI focused people. But uh, yeah, the article itself basically shows you how to work with a storybook to use it as a component library uh, demo and development tool for your uh, React component library, right? So you, it goes, it's a relatively large article and it goes through uh, pretty much everything you need to know to use the storybook with React from the uh, very basic, you know, setup of the React project, setup of the um, uh, SCSS in this case, uh, setting up the uh, version control. So like very, very basic from, from the very basics basically what you would do if you would set up your own new project, um, theming, whatever the hell you want, right? And then go into the uh, storybook. Again, this is the article from Auth0 guys. They typically tend to publish pretty good articles. Uh, so if you're interested in storybooks and uh, React component libraries, 
with uh, with storybooks right do have a look at this one it is quite good okay next thing we got is building electron app with view um i'm not sure well sorry building a desktop app with view electron this is what the title says but basically it's building electron apps with Vue.js, right so um there is Oh, there we go. Okay, so um, yeah, it is a quite basic tutorial that will guide you through creating the basic uh, Vue.js Electron app using the Electron View template. And we'll show you how exactly you can, uh, you know, set everything up. How do you configure it? How do you scaffold it using Vue command line interface? How do you make the API calls from it? How does it all comes together? And in the end, you will build a basic uh, weather app that will basically show you the weather for the whatever location you would enter, including some basic styling that would make it look nicer, essentially, right? So if you are new to Electron, I guess, that will be quite useful. If you are new to Electron and Vue.js, that might be useful as well. If you already are familiar with Electron and if you already know what the Vue.js is, then you are likely not going to find anything useful in here because most of the information is quite, uh, you know, entry level, basically. All right, continuing, we got uh, hosting your uh, React application with Amazon Web Services in 30 minutes. This is a step-by-step -step tutorial on how to publish your React.js app as a static app on Amazon Web Services using Amazon Web Services command line interface. The app is built with create React app and uh, you know VS Code as the um, editor and Git as the code management. So nothing extraordinary here. I would say that if you never worked with Amazon Web Services and if you were interested in it, because they do have a pretty nice free tier of things, even though you know you would have to basically fight with the amount of um, like with the number of features they have because there's too many and you don't need like 90% of this. They do provide a pretty nice free tier that can host your website like homepage or whatever for free. Um, so if that sounds interesting, this tutorial will basically guide you through the all basic process with uh, some bonuses like adding a Cognito sign-in, which is the like a software as a service signing thing. And uh, there is, there was something else. There's a mosquito here. Okay, um, sorry, <laughs> apologies for that. For whatever reason, we have too many mosquitoes lately in this house. I don't know like where they're coming from. There was none during the summer. And now we have like a mosquito invasion. This is just terrible. Um, but yeah, okay. So basically, if you're interested in hosting your React app, so like static HTML JS app on Amazon Web Services, do have a look at this article. Uh, it will guide you through everything you need to know to do that. All right, next thing we got is the rise of Emer in React. Um, basically a history of, and I guess a small overview of the uh, Emer library for React state management, which I've heard about at some point, but to be honest, I've never, I thought of it never clicked with me and I never used it that much, but it's uh, like the article claims it is on a rise and a lot of people prefer it, but I don't know, like, um, there's some comparison with like MobX and uh, React's state handlers and stuff like this. And, you know, why immutable JS is a pain in ass, which admittedly it is because, you know, you always have to sort of configure, uh, sorry, not configure, convert from immutable JS to JavaScript to actually have some proper interrupts. So you don't have like destruction and all that kind of stuff, which can be a bit annoying, right? So you always end up doing those like 
casts from Immutable.js to JavaScript and from JavaScript to Immutable.js, which ends up just being extreme annoyance and not very helpful. While on the other hand, the Emer uh, has the like proper JavaScript interop, so you can actually use destruction and everything. And uh, apparently debugging is also nice, but I don't know, like there is React Redux, is there a link to Emer? There's Emer Vitter, this is not, Oh, they do have, okay. So they actually, there's actually an Emer libraries that provide the uh, unstated like API where you just wrap in provider and then use consumers with a uh, render props to get a set. That looks actually quite nice. Okay, so you get immutability and the render props uh, state access. That, that looks pretty cool. Okay, so, you know, if you're, in, if you're looking for a better immutable solution for the state management for React, then do check out this article and uh, read a bit uh, on Emer. Maybe this is what you're looking for. Maybe this is the exact solution that you need. I, I personally, in the past three projects used unstated with, you know, just basic mutable state and that worked out pretty well. So I'm, I guess I'm kind of happy with it. I probably would go immutable if JavaScript would finally get like built-in immutability. There was some proposals and talks about doing that, but I don't know how it will end up. So I don't think there's any, any of them even gotten to stage zero so far, but we're gonna see. But yeah, uh, if you're interested in immutable state management in React, do check out the rise of Emer. Um, seems to be quite good. Right, continuing, we got introducing the React profiler. So the article that was promised to be published soon after React version 16.5, which introduced the Profiler API, uh, but we only got it like recently, uh, five days ago. Um, it's basically an overview of the new uh, Profiler that is now integrated into React Dev Mode, uh, which allows you, so you, you have, if you have the React um, Dev extension, there's now a Profiler tab that works more or less the same way that they're, um, Chrome DevTools or, you know, Firefox DevTools or whatever works, so you can just, hit a record button, do your actions, and then you will get the flame graphs that depict uh, what exactly is happening within the React app. So it's gonna be like the VDOM and you know, the, the, your actual functions, not everything basically. So you can actually see the bottlenecks in your code. Uh, there's also some really cool uh, additional features um, like, you know, filtering by the time from the, there was a GIF uh, from the, uh, commits and um, hiding native refreshes, I believe, and stuff like this. So it seems to be really good. Like I have not, I've not needed so far to profile any React tabs, but uh, you know, admittedly, we typically have a relatively simple UI, so it's not like we're hitting the um, performance bottlenecks that often. But uh, yeah, if you are working with React components and you are having performance problems, then uh, try out the profiler. Maybe this will solve all your issues. That seems to be quite, quite good. And I mean, it's now integrated, which is kind of amazing. So yeah, it seems like it even has like interaction and commits tracking. That is just crazy good. Oh yeah, okay, that, that, there you go. So this is the introducing the React profiler. If that sounds interesting, do have read as it usually happens uh, with the um, articles from the React team, they are quite good. Okay, next article we got is understanding the Node.js cluster module. 
Um, basically, all you need to know about Node.js cluster module, if you never heard about it, uh, basically allows you to fork uh, the same script on into multiple processes, right, and run them in parallel and sort of take advantage of the multi-core systems. Uh, there is no shared memory or anything like this among them. So this is like one of the points you have to keep in mind. Uh, it's basically, yeah, you, you could sort of polyfill it by using child processes, but it just does it for you. And there are some additional handy things that it basically provides. So if you ever wanted to do multi-process clustering using Node.js, then do check out the article. It gives a pretty good introduction to it. Um, admittedly, I think the cluster module documentation Node.js itself is quite good. So if you are still confused after reading this, I, I would recommend just going and reading the docs themselves because they will give you just about everything you want to know about the cluster module because as I think I already said more than once, the Node.js documentation is quite good. All right. Next up, we got master JavaScript, call by sharing parameter passing. So a uh, bit confusing title, but the article actually talks about the, how does, so it's it's um, it's one of those very, very in-depth looks uh, down to the, you know, looking at the assembly code and registers allocation and all that kind of stuff. You can see on the screen right now, there's even some disassembly going uh, into how exactly does JavaScript passes values when you invoke a function is it call by value is it call by reference uh and turns out so it's actually for primitives you have call by value right so this is quite straightforward if you pass like a string or a number it's just going to be passed as a value of that uh, string or a number or whatever but if you pass a more complex object like an array or an object or class or whatever it's actually going to be um done through something that is called call by sharing, which is uh, I did not know about. So or is also called copy of reference. So what it actually does is takes the reference and then sends a copy of it into the function so that when you access it, you actually modify the original object. But if you try to override it, you will not override the original reference, but rather the copy of reference. This is why is it a copy of reference, right? So um, the article goes into way more in depth looking into this whole thing, which is absolutely fascinating to read. And the author did an incredible job going so deep to actually look at how it works. So if it sounds interesting, and I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty valuable knowledge uh, to basically have about the JavaScript uh, engine workings, I guess. Uh, do have a look at this article. It is quite fascinating to read. Um, right. If you're not interested in low level assembly code and figuring out how the JavaScript works very low level, um, uh, then yeah, maybe that's not for you. Uh, do you know of a proper way to do perfect copies of complex objects? Um, well, I mean, I would use a helper function. Like there is lodash right so like this is literally you won't find a better um utility code for javascript than in lodash so there is clone deep i believe it was uh no wait clone yes clone deep so this is what you want this is literally like the best approach and if you want to see how exactly it's done there is always a source link here and uh, oh god this is sixteen thousand lines of code um, okay, let me refresh that and hope that it will actually jump me to the correct position. No? Uh, okay, let's try that again. That sometimes can be a bit painful to 
actually look at the source code of Lodash because it's just too too large. But I mean, essentially, you need to iterate through the um, object, right, to find all the nested, more complicated objects, and then copy them. This is exactly what they do, right? So uh, it's it seems like the code is actually way more. Now this is chunk. This is not clone. Wait, where's clone deep? Looks like their documentation is slightly clone deep. Base clone. Okay, so we have the base clone, and base clone is uh, there. We go. Yeah. So you got this base clone. It uses like basically yeah basically just use lodash really it has the es6 module support now so you can actually just use one function and you know do the tree shaking to throw out the rest that you don't use because this code here even though you think you know this more or less simple procedure you just go through the object you go through keys check if it's a complex object there if it's a complex object you again iterate through it and copy uh, keys and values um, the thing is that there is a lot of ways of doing that, right? And the way that Lodash does it is the most efficient way. You can be almost sure of that because those guys have been optimizing the library for past 10 years or something. Like, I don't know how old is it right now, but uh, yeah. So summer coffee, yeah. Like if you, if you don't copy, if you don't do the deep copy, you will copy the references essentially to the nested objects and this will bring problems. So what you want to do is you want to deep cloning. And in this case, you know, as I said, just use Lodash or, or um, other library that basically does it for you because writing it yourself is, is just not very nice. Okay, um, let us continue. Next article we got is Next.js 6 features, a practical introduction. Another article from Auth0, guys. Um, this is essentially, if you never heard about Next.js, Next.js is amazing. It's a lightweight framework for static and server-side rendered uh, applications in Java, uh, React is what I want to say. And this article basically gives you a short introduction into what the Next.js is, what kind of cool features does it have, and how exactly you can use them when you work uh, with uh, React apps. So again, you know, if you know what Next.js is, this is probably not the article you want to read. If you never heard about Next.js, this is definitely the article you want to read. If you maybe heard something about it, but not sure about all the cool features that it has, then definitely have a look. It has uh, quite a bunch of highlights, I think quite good ones. Um, so yeah, quite recommend it. Nothing too fancy, but you know, it's a pretty good article. Okay, next article we got is the 100 correct, uh, let me try that again. 100% correct way to split your chunks with a webpack. Um, so again, um, a bit clickbaity title maybe. Let me just sip some water. So a bit maybe uh, a bit clickbaity title, but um, there's like the webpack is a very complex library, right? So there's there's always more than one way to do things and Depending on the use case, there's no, you know, there's no 100% correct way to split um, anything. Like there's no 100% correct way to do one thing in, in that pack, right? Because it's just way too complex and there's always gonna be way more than one way to do this. But this article talks about splitting the chunks and, you know, using bundle splitting, code splitting, and how do they work? What is your baseline? How do you actually calculate? How do you figure out um, 
how to minimize the loading times and all of that stuff. So if you are interested in code splitting, if you're interested in bundle splitting, it's specifically done with Webpack. So you would have to, you know, modify your Webpack configuration on your own. There is quite a bunch of config editing involved. It is quite in-depth, uh, deep dive basically into the Webpack configuration on the code splitting and uh, chunking and all that kind of stuff. Um, if you are not handling your Webpack config, then well, that's probably not for you because once again, as I said, all of this revolves around uh, tweaking the config quite heavily. Uh, but yeah, you know, then again, maybe you already figured the right way of doing this in your case. So don't take the headline too close to heart. Let's put it this way. All right, next article we got is why should your Node.js application not handle log routing? Essentially, um, <clears throat> best practices for log routing. So as in, you know, you should not let your app figure out where it should write logs. The logs should be just written into the STD out, for example, and uh, then the whoever manages the logs should actually route them. So this is the gist of it. I think the most uh, obvious example of this is uh, packaging the apps into Docker. So it's always a pain in the ass when the app doesn't log everything into STD out, STD error, and you have to like, you know, when you Dockerize it and you want to, instead of just using, so Docker provides those uh, Docker logs um, drivers, I think they're called. So you can actually configure the driver and then the std out stdr of the uh, container will just go wherever you want, like Elasticsearch or, you know, some other log stash, whatever the hell you want, and then you can analyze them, right? But if the app, if the um, application author for whatever reason decided that, hey, you know, um, std out is not fancy anymore, so I'm just going to write it somewhere, you have to set up your own third-party solution that would, I don't know, tap into this volume with a file of logging and then print it out somewhere or pipe it directly to your Elasticsearch, which, which always ends up to be painful as hell. So um, essentially the article talks about, yeah, best practices of logging. I would not say that this specifically Node.js. I mean, it like talks a bit about using console and SD out, SDDR, but I would say this is basically a good practice for just about any app working in a modern containerized environment, let's put it this way. So if you're interested in, yeah, log, ha log handling, log routing and complex application log reasoning, I would say, then do check it out. It is quite um, interesting. Let's put it this way. There are some good thoughts in here. All right, uh, next article we got is how to test the synchronous data fetching on React components. So, um, we've seen quite a lot of articles talking about testing React components, right? So this one is focusing specifically on testing a component that does something with the asynchronously received data and talks about how exactly you can uh, work with it. So first of all, you know, how can you control the response? How can you wait until the response comes? How can you write this test? How can you await for the component to finish? what are the libraries that you would use to do this and so on and so forth. So it's a pretty in-depth look into basically how you test one, exactly one component in this case, but uh, it's basically gonna guide you through everything you need to know to write a test like this. If you 
Already written tests for asynchronous data fetching components. If you already know how to do that, then well, you won't really find anything new in here. It's uh, pretty straightforward. If not, then well, it's a really great starting point. All right, next article we got is cache your React event listeners to improve performance. Um, this is one of those um, very basic articles that I think a lot of people who write React uh, or I guess this is one of the articles about those very basic things in React that a lot of uh, people who just start writing React, they usually get it slightly wrong, right? So you, it's again, it comes down to this uh, sort of reference and value things where you, uh, instead of, you know, uh, instantiating the object multiple times, you actually copy the reference, right? And, uh, in this case, it talks about the uh, event handlers. So, you know, the, the whole on click, create actions, whatever. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> like this is the the typical thing that you see in a code that of people who just started writing React is that on click, and then you have the anonymous function that triggers something. That means that every re-render will create this new function, right? Which means that you will have a memory leak. So whenever your app refreshes, you will get more and more and more and more of those event handlers and the old ones won't really be disposed of properly. So what you have to do is you have to um, bind it. And uh, the modern syntax looks like this. So you basically say, okay, create whatever on on click function equals anonymous function that is bound to the current class, which is very nice because before you had to do this, this whole this function equals this function bind this, which was annoying as hell. And I'm really thankful to the S6 syntax that makes me no, no longer need to do this basically. Um, there's also talk about more advanced uh, patterns, like, you know, when you iterate over an array, uh, that basically you have to have another function uh, that triggers with the given parameter. So how do you handle that? And talks about using the uh, memoization for that actually. So uh, this, yeah, it's basically not just, you know, the very basic patterns, but also some more advanced stuff with like working with arrays, memoization, a bit of functional programming again and stuff like this. So um, quite recommended if you are just getting started with uh, working with React. Or maybe you didn't know about that. That's also a good uh, point to learn about it because this will save you quite a lot of memory actually, yes. And uh, performance in the end. Okay, next article we got is the 12 things you need to consider when evaluating any new JavaScript library. I got some crazy people driving around in the parking lots. Hopefully they will not crash into the house. That will be, okay. I don't know, hopefully you cannot hear that. <laughs> Okay, so talking about the article, 12 things you need to need to consider evaluating new JavaScript library, right? Um, right, so here's the 12 things. Features, stability, performance, package ecosystem, community, learning curve, documentation, tooling, track record, team compatibility, and momentum. Kinda agree with most of them. Uh, the one thing that is missing, in my opinion, is the and something that should be number one in here is how much does it fit your use case? I think this is what you should start your evaluation from, right? It's like, it's very easy to say, oh yeah, you know, this has a lot of features, this is super stable, this has like great performance and a nice community, but it also doesn't fit my use case completely. <laughs> it just seems a bit silly. I guess maybe there was just like the um, author thought that was like, you know, um, 
um, how do you put it in English? Oh man, I'm forgetting words today. Sorry, I'm not completely healthy yet, as you probably might hear from my voice. So I might be a bit slower than usual. Um, it I guess it implies like the it, it it implies that you pick the libraries fitting to your use case. I guess this is what I want to say, right? But other than that, it is a relatively good points on how you would pick uh, the articles. I don't know if I would go for stuff like, you know, Momentum or um, Track Record or stuff like the learning curve, maybe not as well. It's like if the library does what I want it to do and it has good documentation and uh, it is stable enough and, you know, it doesn't have any bugs that just will make my life impossible then it usually works for me but yeah it's basically if you are in this moment where you don't really know yet how exactly do you pick between multiple libraries then this article would will give you a pretty good starting point but i would not take all of its advices to the heart basically and would just uh you know sort of try to figure out your own approach to that let's put it this way so don't don't just follow it blindly this is what I'm trying to say. Okay, next article we got is getting started with Vue.js plugin, production ready example. A basic tutorial on writing Vue.js plugins. So if you are working with Vue.js, if you wanna write your own plugin, this will guide you through the whole process from very start to very end to basically publishing it on NPM, I believe they talk about, no, just GitHub, okay. So how do you actually, you know, build the whole thing? How do you publish it in GitHub? How does it interact with Vue.js? How does it interact with other things? How do you uh, build it and so on and so forth? So basically, if you're working with Vue.js and you want to know about new plugins, then this is uh, something you should read. All right. Next article we got is speedy introductions to web workers. Um, exactly what you would expect. This is an introduction to web workers. Uh, from the ground up, why, what is web workers? Why should you use them? How do you set them up? Um, for whatever reason, they use the code sandbox environment instead of just doing it locally, but hey, you know, works. Um, talking about what the web worker can do, how do you communicate with it? And basically all the basics. So if you are looking into working with web workers, do check it out. It is a good starting point. Next article we got is GitHub pull requests and Visual Studio Code. So um, yeah, Microsoft acquired GitHub, right? I'm sure the deal is not yet closed, not even close to closed, but um, we are now seeing more and more GitHub features being added to VS Code, which is kind of awesome. So right now they've added a new feature, which allows you to review and manage pull requests right in VS Code without leaving your editor, which is just, pretty damn amazing to be honest um like yeah you can you can literally i i think at, at some point you would be able to manage the whole github without leaving vs code which would be quite interesting to see how good it will be actually be because i don't know i still still manage my git from the command line and i still go to the github to actually manage the pull requests and you know issues and everything so i don't know if i would use that but uh, it does look quite nice all right Next thing we got is uh, 10 years of Chrome DevTools. Uh, so we talked about this last time, Chrome turned 10 and uh, Chrome teams are now releasing 10 years of Chrome X, you know, DevTools, um, 
extensions, V8, whatever. There's like a bunch of different articles. We're gonna go through a bunch of them today. So the first one talks about DevTools and there is the sort of history of DevTools, how it all started with a Firebug, which was quite amazing at the time, to be honest. Like if, if it wasn't for Firebug, we wouldn't have uh, Chrome DevTools today, but uh, yeah. And then there was the WebKit Web Inspector, the Inspect Element era, the Mobile era, and then it went to the performance, the profiling. Yeah, this is something that, that, that like, the thing is that when I look at those, I know that, you know, we've had them for years now, basically, right? But I don't remember times when the this new timeline tab and the profile tab was something that was just added to the browser and was like, oh, shit, I can do that. It was amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's still amazing that you can actually just do that with a browser, but holy crap, it was a time we didn't have that. <laughs> it's kind of incredible. Yeah, so if you're interested in knowing basically the history of DevTools and how they came to be and what are all the steps that they went through, do check this article out. It is quite entertaining. The next article we got is 10 years of speed in Chrome. That is more or less the same, the overview of the speed improvements in V8 and Chrome browser, uh, not just V8, but you know, the Chrome itself, including the stuff like Ignition, Turbofan, uh, script streaming and all that kind of stuff uh, going from the very beginning 2008 and up to current year so uh, comparing the benchmarks and you know looking at how all of that stuff changed the addition of service workers and all of that kind of stuff which is also quite fascinating to think that you know just 10 years ago we did not have most of that stuff actually, which is kind of crazy. And if you look at this score here, the improvements are also quite insane. It's like almost fivefold in 10 years. Just, yeah, just, just crazy when you think about it. Yes, profiler tab is really good and you should really start using it uh, for polishing the apps. You know, once you get to the stage of the app when the app is complete and you know, okay, this is now ready to be shipped and you need to like catch bugs and polish it. You just open the profiler tab and look at the most clogged points essentially of your, you know, the, the code points of your app and then start optimizing it because it's not that hard and it can make your app feel about 10 times better. Okay, next article we got is celebrating 10 years of V8. Well, this is again uh, 10 years of V8 in this case. The article talking about history of V8 specifically, going uh, again, talking about the V8, what's been added, the performance and uh, platform supports, ARM support and all of this kind of stuff. So again, if you're interested in history of uh, V8 specifically, do check it out. It is quite cool. There's also some code base evolution visualization here that looks really fancy. So if you're into this kind of stuff. All right. Next thing we got is Yarn Plug and Play, getting rid of node modules. This is happening, people, this is happening. So um, I'm overly excited about this, but uh, both Yarn and NPM teams decided that it's time to get rid of node modules folder. Um, so there's two RFCs, one from Yarn guys and one from NPM guys. Uh, I think NPM actually already shipped its uh, experimental uh, thing, but we're going to talk about it in a second. So the idea is that instead of using node modules, the bundler will use a log file and links to the, or I guess path to the um, modules in the cache 
to actually resolve all dependencies, right? So in this case, if you already have it cached, you don't need to copy it or anything and it will just work. So the install time is cut up to, I think it was like, oh man, if I remember correctly, let me try to remember. There was a bunch of tweets, like there was a pretty big discussion on Twitter about this and uh, the guys from Code Sandbox was like, hey, this cut our install time from 30 seconds to three. I think it was like, yeah, 10 times improvement basically, which is just insane when you think about it. And I am really excited to see where this goes. So then again, you know, in the Yarn case, this is just an RFC. There is a PR already outstanding in the Yarn itself. There's already implementation. It is still ongoing work. There's a lot of discussion here and a lot of like, things that have to be sorted out, but uh, it will not affect any existing code. It will not affect bundlers. So it's basically just the resolution of the modules, which is kind of awesome when you think about it. So in theory, that should not break anything in the existing code bases. It will just make it faster. So this is the Yarn uh, plug and play proposal, right? And we have the NPM um, thing, which is was published in the uh, article called Next Generation Package Management and they actually already managed to rename it. So it's now called Tink. And when they just published it, it was called, oh, what was it called? It was called Crux. I don't know, I don't know why they decided to rename it, but there you go. So um, the idea is the same as, you know, the Yarn uh, guys, no more node modules, just the package log JSON. And uh, yes, in this case, uh, Tink is a replacement for Node itself and it will basically uh, has its own require that would look up the things in the cache of NPM. So it seems to be taking a slightly different approach to the yarn, but uh, we're gonna see how, you know, how, how both of those resolve, let's put it this way, and uh, which one of them wins, which approach would be better, but this makes me very excited for the future of NPM and node modules, you know, because having less node modules, packages and folders is definitely a good thing in my book. So let's see how that resolves. Again, you know, if you're, you're brave and living on the edge, you can download it and try it again. It is experimental, but it already works. So yeah, just, just give it a shot. All right, uh, next thing we got is what is first party isolation in Firefox and what breaks if you enable it? So if you've never heard about it, Firefox introduced the first party isolation as an optional uh, privacy feature. I think it's still behind the flag. But basically the idea is that all the websites will be isolated in their own tiny sandboxes within the browsers so that the cookies that are in the scripts that are you know set in one website will not be accessible to other websites in any way. So even if like you, you know, the way that fa Facebook or Google or whatever track you is that you go to a website that has a Facebook like button, the Facebook will know that you was there, right? So this is pretty simple. But what the first party isolation does is that it just says, okay, you know, it's you're on a different website, you're a script from Facebook, but you're on a different website, so you cannot access Facebook. So tough luck. And uh, the thing is that a lot of the modern web is built around this whole idea that you can actually kind of track user through those boundaries, right? And um, provide enhanced experience and in some cases just straight up spy for users. So the first party isolation actually breaks a lot of things. 
Some of them being like, you know, third party logins, for example, the ones that are not exactly built in a correct ways, let's call it this way. So like Oath and stuff like this still should work, but Facebook and Google logins, they are not exactly Oath. And yeah, they just might straight up break because of that. And you will see more captures because obviously, you know, you don't really have Google cookies and websites cannot access you and cannot verify that you are actually a human in this case, because this is how it's typically done. So you're going to see a lot of captures, which is annoying, but uh, yeah, that's the truth of it. So if you're interested in more consequences of what exactly happens if you enable first party isolation, how you enable it in the Firefox right now, do check this article out. It is quite interesting to read about actually. There's some very disturbing points to be, um, you know, picked up from here, actually. Okay, next thing we got is intent to implement display locking. There's a new intent to implement uh, of the display locking API, which I thought to be quite interesting. So this is the intent to implement in uh, Chrome specifically. The uh, display locking is a proposal that adds a script API that locks a DOM element for display. So whenever you lock an element, the visual representation on the page does not change as you know result of DOM mutations or whatever the scripts do to it. Instead, the DOM will be mutated um, and basically you can inspect the mutations and modify it in the script itself. And then you can commit the lock and only then the display will change essentially. So you can, um, like I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I immediately see, you know, how it can be used. I guess one of the use cases would be stuff like instead of actually having a virtual DOM in React, we would just use this, right? Because you don't really need virtual DOM if you don't re-render DOM on every iteration, you would just schedule it and then synchronize it with committing the lock, which would exactly what virtual DOM does right now. But um, it, is, it is really interesting to see how this will develop and um, you know, what exactly will this mean for for the uh, especially desktop apps because like yeah the stuff that the one of the reasoning the common patterns that can cause jank resizing multi-pane ui with complex layouts like in ides adding widgets with complex dom and stuff like this which is quite interesting so it seems to be aimed at you know the more uh, like heavy complex applications that have a very um how do you put it like ui intensive widgets i guess so it's, it's interesting to see where all of this going. Uh, this seems to be, I don't know if this API is uh, specced, but it does sound interesting at least. So let's see how that develops. Okay, next thing we got is this uh, tiny Twitter thread that talks about the Google indexing. So everyone knows that Google actually indexes pages with JavaScript on and uh, turns out that's not quite true. So the thing is that Google has a two pass indexing. The first pass doesn't run JavaScript and then the second pass week later actually runs JavaScript and scrapes all the content with JavaScript and everything. So um, if, you, if your site produces new updated content frequently and you want it indexed quickly, you need that content in HTML. This is like the basically official word from one of the Google developers. I found this to be very interesting. And this means that basically, you know, server-side rendering is like 20 more times important than people thought. So if you have a website and you want it to be search engine friendly, then uh, do consider server-side rendering and do consider 
displaying everything in plain HTML without like JavaScript enabled, right? So that, that basically, uh, I, don't, I don't remember if I already said that, but this is, this is my new thing. I've disabled JavaScript completely in my mobile phone and I now browse all the mobile web with all the JavaScript disabled. Um, this has been the best JavaScript or the best mobile web experience I've ever had because I don't see advertisements. Uh, most of the content works fine. The one that doesn't work, I just close straight up because it's usually bonkers. And the loading times are like 20 times smaller. <laughs> so um, yeah, I just, I guess I just can say I pretend to be a Google bot. There you go. But yeah, it's uh, definitely something to keep in mind. All right, uh, next thing we got here is Ask Hacker News. What's a starting point to learn how to write a programming language? So this is, um, I found to be a pretty interesting Google thread, uh, sorry, not Google, Hacker News thread. It's quite large as you can see here, there's a lot of discussion going on uh, about writing your own programming language. So if you ever wanted to write um, any language, like even simple one, like Markdown or um, SQL, I wouldn't call SQL a simple language, but okay. Uh, yeah, so if you're if that sounds like a something that you would want to do if you want to create your own language, then do check out this thread. There is a lot of very cool links, and uh, it turns out there's actually more than one approach to doing that, which is kind of cool. I never even thought about that. You know, I never wanted to build my own language, so there you go. Um, if you are curious, if you want to build your own next better JavaScript, maybe or you know something else. Do check this thread out. There is a lot of very interesting links. And you know, even if you don't do click on those links, there seems to be some pretty amazing stuff, uh, at least in some of them. I haven't checked all of them yet, but uh, yeah, the ones that I've opened were pretty cool. Right, um, last thing we got in the articles today, well, it's not exactly article. This is just another highlight from the uh, uh, Matthias uh, Binance, the, one of the V8 team developers. Um, small highlight, there is now a Node.js flavor for each major JavaScript engine, which is kind of awesome. So aside from the Node.js in v with V8, right, which is the standard Node.js, you can now get Node.js with Node Chakra Core, you can now get Node.js with JavaScript Core, which is the Safari engine, and you can now get Node.js with SpiderMonkey, which is the Firefox engine, which is kind of great. And um, I think all of them work more or less in the same way. I think they should be compatible, but I'm not like, don't take my word on it. But it is really cool that, you know, we can actually get all of that and uh, they just work basically. And uh, worth noting, no Chakra Core actually lives in official Node.js group, which is also neat. Okay, now we are coming to the releases section. Uh, the first release of the week being Node.js version 8.12 LTS. The um, Bunch of things changed, the major highlight being the upgrades to NPM 6.41 and libuv 1.19.2, as well as a node inspect 1.11.5. Uh, everything else more or less like minor changes, fixes, and you know, thing like this. I mean, it is an LTS thing, so don't expect any uh, major changes in here anymore. Uh, but yeah, you know, if you are on LTS, do remember to upgrade. Okay, next thing we got is the Webpack Bundle, on, Webpack Bundle Analyzer 3.0, and there's actually already been 3.01, 3.02. Um, the uh, 
Breaking changes, basically they dropped node v4, which is, you know, soon going out of the uh, life cycle. So you should upgrade at least to node six, better eight. Uh, there's a now um, the um, bundle analyzer now allows you to do module search and pin and resize the sidebar. And there's some additional like nice things. Basically, if you never used it, Webpack bundle analyzer is a really nice visualization of uh, the size of your bundle and where exactly it comes from. So it gives you a very nice viz of all the files and bundles and apps and uh, scripts. And so you can, you know, figure out what exactly eats up your bundle size. Quite recommended if you are looking to trim down that application size. Okay, next release we got is Workbox version 3.5. Um, is basically more customization when generating a service worker. So if you never heard about Workbox, it's a tool from Google Chrome team that allows you to uh, generate things for progressive web apps, simplifying, you know, like web worker generation and things like this. Uh, highly recommended if you're working with progressive web apps, there is a lot of very useful things that Workbox can do. Uh, do check it out and now it's a bit better. Next release we got is Formic 1.3 with a new docs, uh, error message component, fast field uh, component improved and new guides on race validation and submission. If you never heard about Formic, it's a very nice React Forms library that basically um, allows you to build pretty advanced forms with validation and you know whatever the hell you want. It is quite nice. I've used it in a couple of projects. Do recommend it if you need a complex forms. Well, if you don't need complex forms, then you're probably gonna be good with just using plain HTML. All right, next release we got is uh, PWA version 0 0.30 and 3.1 already with minor fixes. The highlight being that it adds new plugins uh, for Bubble, Broadly, Gzip and Zopfly, um, which is always nice. So if you haven't heard about PWA, it is, a tiny universal progressive web apps builder from Luke Edwards, the guy behind Polka. It is still experimental, so it's not 1.0 yet, but I've tried it and it, you know, works already quite well. I mean, as most of the things that this guy publishes, it is quite tiny and basically builds around the plugins. So quite nice. Okay, next release we got is JS Lingui uh, 2.7 which uh, introduces the macro package, which I don't know yet what it is. It uh, adds the pseudo localization that we talked about in one of the podcasts, which is really awesome. That allows you to test the, you know, if your strings actually fit the, the localized strings will fit, you know, the uh, placeholders, stuff like this. And it adds the um, i18n date and i18n number methods, which is always quite handy. Um, I have not used the library myself yet, but we have a couple of guys in our team using it for one of the React projects and I've heard good things about it. So it does lack some of the minor things. I think they were complaining about something, but uh, in general, it seems to be quite happy with it. So yeah, if you're looking for a tiny internationalization library for JavaScript, not necessarily just React, do a look at the Ligui, it seems to be quite cool. Okay, next thing we got is TypeScript 3.1 RC, uh, introducing the mappable tuple and array types. And I think that's basically about it. As it also allows property on function declarations and um, there's some breaking changes, but yeah, you know, if you're, if you're writing TypeScript, do check it out. I don't really, don't really want to comment on this because I'm not using TypeScript that heavily enough to uh, basically give you any opinion here. 
Next release we got is Puppeteer version 1.8. The major changes being Chromium 71 update. Uh, you can now manage browser permissions and you can now re request interception with ignore HTTP errors option. So uh, all the nice to see all the improvements. The, you know, there's been a lot of updates and Puppeteer is a really cool tool for headless browser controls. Okay, that's it for the releases. Now we are at the libraries and demos and all that kind of stuff section. The first uh, demo we have here today is called Lassum Wheel. As a demo project aiming to show the diversity of languages that compile to WebAssembly. So there's a, I think the, core uh, value of this project comes from showing how you can actually build of those all of those languages into WebAssembly. So the currently the project uh, includes C, C++, C Sharp, AssemblyScript, Rust, Java, Kotlin, and Golang. And it has a one nice handy Docker file that basically have everything set up for you. You can just Docker uh, build, Docker run, and it will work quite nicely. The public demo is also available. So if you want, you can just, you know, take a look and my JavaScript is probably blocked. That's why we don't really see anything. There we go. So yes, there we go. The wheel actually works. And uh, it just yeah, outputs I imagine this is actually the value coming from the um, program in the language that we have selected, which is quite nice. Right, the next library we got is React Local Redux. Manage component-specific state as you would global state via Redux. I still don't know why would you want that, but you know, if you want a bit more boilerplate in your life, I'm joking right now, but um, there's probably some use case for that. But uh, yes, if you want to have reducers on your current state, then do check this library out. Still waiting for the download API to be updated on Puppeteer. Yes, download API is something that more than uh, one, more than one person I know or I talk to have requested. And there's, I mean, there's quite a discussion there going on in the Puppeteer library as well. So I'm hoping they will ship it soon. There was some issues that they encountered. And I think there's like Chromium team are now updating the Chromium so that they could ship it in Puppeteer, which is kind of neat when you think about it. Okay. Next thing we got is React Simple Animate, a simple animation library that allows you to do simple animations from inline style A to inline style B. Uh, also allows doing the chain animation sequences, uh, supports adding, removing childs, and uh, quite tiny basically without any other dependencies. If we're looking for a very simple animation for React, do check it out. It seems to be quite nice. And again, also supports like sequences, chains, and all that kind of stuff. You stupid mosquito, die. Okay, he doesn't want to die, okay. Um, continuing, we got uh, WatermelonDB, next generation database for powerful React and React native applications that scales to under 10,000 of records and remains fast. Uh, what they actually say is that this is an SQLite-based uh, database wrapper with a really nice API. That's, that's basically it. So essentially, it's an SQLite. Uh, the only difference is that it provides a nicer API in addition with uh, RxJS wrapping and some other stuff and also made to work with React Native, which you know can be a bit uh, annoying. Um, so yes, if you're looking for a database for your next React or React Native apps, do check this out. This seems to be quite nice. Um, not version 1.0, so disclaimer here, maybe you don't want to use it in production just yet. 
Okay, next thing we got is Tyco, Node.js library to automate Chrome Chromium browser. So this seems to be like a puppeteer alternative, I guess, but uh, seems to be more focused on doing the sort of REPL way. You know, you have this like REPL window where you can literally type in commands and then it will actually show you the browser. So I don't know if it works with headless mode or not. We'll actually do the stuff in the browser uh, like visibly. So um, I still don't quite understand how it compares to Puppeteer and why would you use this over Puppeteer, but maybe if you want it, you know, maybe you know why, just, just check it out. Maybe this is what you were looking for. Maybe this is what you want. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I would still stick to my Puppeteer stuff. Okay, next thing we got is Drome, powerful and easy task runner. So this is task runner for JavaScript. I think last time I used one was when Gulp was version 1.0. That was like four or five years ago. That was a long time ago. I haven't used task runners in, in quite a while. Um, I guess I just didn't have uh, complex enough build processes. Um, but yeah, this is task runner. Seems quite nice. You know, the config seems straightforward. So if you're looking for a task runner, do check it out. Maybe this is what you want to use. I yeah. And I God, those mosquitoes just don't want to die. Okay. Let's continue. The next thing we got is React Copyright, immutable state with immutable API. This is a state management, uh React State Management Library powered by Emer that we talked about today. And uh, yeah, it seems to be quite simple. So you get the create state thing that gives you a provider, consumer, selector, and mutate function. And rest of the API seems quite similar to what you would expect from like unstated and any other context-based state management libraries. Uh, the cool thing is that you have this uh, selectors that you can run on the state, which I don't know, like when you have destruction, I don't know if that brings any benefit and you use the mutate function to actually change the uh, state using the current state. So yeah, looks, looks nice. I guess, you know, if you, if that's your thing, do check it out. Maybe this is what you want. I used to double type every letter when typing puppeteer. Yes, this is something I used to do a lot as well. It is not very easy to type. <laughs> okay. Uh, next thing we got is loadable components, React code splitting made easy. So it's a very nice library for um, code splitting React components and make the components async basically. Literally just wrap it and use the import statement as in the async import from the file and then you just use it as a component wherever you want and this library does everything else for you. Super easy to use, super nice, um, and supports timeouts and whatever the hell you want. Um, so yes, if you're working with code splitting and dynamic component loading, do check it out. I don't know if it supports suspense yet, but uh, that's definitely something that you could use before suspense comes out. Okay, next thing we got is nlp.js, an NLP library bit, uh, NLP library built in Node over Natural with, wait, what? Okay, so it's an NLP library built in Node.js. Uh, it has entity extraction, sentiment analysis, language identity, and uh, quite a lot more features. It is from the AXA group, which I found to be interesting. So if you've never heard about AXA, they are a really large insurance company in Europe. And uh, yeah, this seems to be pretty 
feature-packed natural language processing library. So if you can see here, there's like email extraction, hashtag extraction, number, like there's a lot of stuff, including sentiment analysis. I don't know which, which sentiment do they actually use. Oh, they actually have a different uh, approaches. So you can actually pick what kind of sentiment analysis you want to run. And for different languages, they support different matchers. This is really cool. So yes, if you are working with natural languages and you are want to do that in uh, Node.js, do check it out. It is pretty cool. Okay, next thing we got is Web Audio Generator, UI for generating web audio code. There is a really nice demo. I will not open it because it starts playing this sound immediately, which is not something I want, uh, but basically looks like this. You have the blocks where you can specify the input, specify the processing gain, you know, analyzers, whatever, specify the output. And what you get in the end is uh, source code. So you can just copy paste it and you will get this exact audio playing um, or, you know, wherever you paste it, which is kind of nice. It's pretty cool. Uh, if you're interested in Web Audio API, do check it out. It is a very nice demo. Right, next thing we got is you don't need moment.js, a list of date funds and native functions that you can use to replace moment.js and the ESLint plugin that can help you with that, which is quite nice. So if, if you didn't know moment.js is, I given though is, you know, quite nice. It is a very large library. It is 329 kilobytes or 70 kilobytes gzipped. Uh, and well, yeah, it's like, it's nice, but very, very heavy. And there's ways to replace it with modern JavaScript or other libraries. This is exactly what this guy talks about, right? So you got this guide and it tells you, okay, so you have this moment function and you can actually just use this and this. Really easy. And there is ESLint plugin that basically can help you with that if you want to run it over the code base that uh, you already have, which is always quite welcome. Okay, next thing we got is JS Yoda, uh, immutable date and time library for JavaScript. Another one of daytime library. So this is um, not that small as well, but you know, it's smaller than, um, Moment is just uh, 43 kilobytes minified and zipped. So this is like half of uh, Moment Express. It is quite fast. It's typically faster than the Moment.js itself. And I think it has support for just about everything the Moment itself has. This is why it's um, taking quite a lot more uh, space than the other libraries, including like locales and stuff like this, which is typically uh, time zones and locales. This is what the Moment.js typically uh, why moment.js is so heavy, right? Because you have a lot of locales and time zones. Okay. Next thing we got is user agents and JavaScript library for generating raised. Uh, let's try that again. JavaScript library for generating random user agents with data that's updated daily. So this is basically a function that generates your user agent data, including stuff like screen hate with viewport, user agent vendor, plugins, whatever the hell you want. So the normal data you could get from the um, user agent, right? And it's all generated nicely. So you can specify device category and you will get like random data and you can use it in testing purposes or whatever the hell you want. Seems quite nice, BSD licensed as well. So, you know, maybe you were looking for something like this. Okay, next thing we got is Tercer. Uh, Tercer, I'm not sure how you correctly read that. I guess it's Tercer. It's a fork of Uglify ES. So there used to be Uglify ES thing. There was the Uglify GS for ES6. 
which is no longer maintained. So some people forked it, uh, renamed it to Terser and started updating it. So it's done. God damn it, stupid mosquito. <clears throat> Apologies. Uh, so this thing is now updated and uh, supports ES. So, you know, if you wanted uh, Uglify ES uh, that is maintained, that is modern, that is works, then do check this one out. Maybe this is what you were looking for. Right, next thing we got is Vasm Worker, move a WebAssembly module in its own threads. Um, this is really cool. So essentially it's a module that allows you to execute WebAssembly in a separate worker thread, which is always really nice. You can offload all the thing. I mean, WebAssembly already has the stream compilation and everything, which makes it incredibly fast. But even if you, you know, if you can make it even faster, then sure, why not? Let's move it into a worker. So. And this makes it very easy, literally one function call. So quite nice. Do check it out if you're working with WebAssembly and wanna move it into a separate worker thread. Right, next thing we got is a Highway.js. Uh, helps you manage your page transitions. There is quite a lot of releases already features and there is a lot of very fancy examples that I will just uh, show you, I think. This one was quite nice. So there's like, yeah, there's a real world websites and uh, those transitions are very fancy. And like, I think this this one also had some very nice animations, you know, like the, yeah, I, I don't know, like over the top animations. So basically if you are looking to do over the top page transitions, then this is the library you wanna check out. All right, next thing we got is TweetX86. Pure client-side combinations of NAssembly, MDOSBox, and WebAssembly to show off your x86 skills in a tweet. So this allows you to run assembly, like x86 assembly, like proper assembly, and then run it right in the browser. So there you go. That's a DOSBox and it runs assembly. And this, we got a snake here and it's like a literal snake so I can play it, you know, and it's, uh, there you go. And it actually even have a fail state. Um, yeah, if you want to practice your assembly game, do check it out. It's, it seems to be crazy enough. Like there's even, you know, like visualizations like this. Well, no, that one, a tube. Um, yeah, so you can, you can even have like a tube visualization right here. And there's a base 64 format that you can just tweet if you want, which is just insane. Some people do some crazy stuff. Okay, um, now we are coming to the silly and interesting section. Let's start with the silly parts. First thing we got here is MS Paint IDE. This is an IDE that allows you to compile things that you write in MS Paint. Don't ask me why. There is a demo here and there's a screenshots of the IDE. You can literally write your code in MS Paint. Um, why do you not open this? I know you should work. Has amazing loading animation as well. Stupid mosquito. There you go. Yep. Oh, where's the image? Oh, there you go. It just changes the thumb. Yes. Yeah, so you use MS Paint to write your source code, right? You save it to the files. You save it to whatever the hell you want. And then you use this IDE to point it to those files. And then this IDE compiles this file and actually executes it. It is Microsoft Paint IDE. I like exactly what you would expect. It is clutter-free UI. It supports Git and it's fastest growing IDE by our polls. Yes, obviously. 
This thing actually works. This is the most terrifying thing about it. It actually works. Um, yeah, okay. And uh, there's a, yeah, there, there, there's a GitHub. So if you want to see how it's made, it's built in Java. You can, you know, recompile it yourself if you, if you want to suffer a bit, a bit more. Okay. Next thing we got is this uh, website called 0.300000, a lot of zeros, 4.com that talks about floating point math and why uh, 0 0.1 plus 0 0.2 not equals 0 0.3. So it all comes down to the base 10 system and the integer and floating point representation in memory. So I know that, you know, this all came from this thread on Twitter. There's also linked in the file that talks about um, people, you know, the people that say that uh, 0 0.2 plus 0 0.1 in JavaScript is actually 0 0.300004, implying JavaScript is doing something wrong. And I knew that this was the case and not just in JavaScript, there's a lot of other languages that actually do that. But I did not know prior to reading this thread that it's actually per spec that the floating point spec that the languages that do floating point operations should do that. This is how it should work, which is kind of interesting. And there's actually like in this Twitter thread, there's like proper explanation of what is going on. There's a lot of interesting discussion going on. And uh, yeah, so this, this is kind of curious to see that this is actually not the fault. Yes, it should. That's the thing. That's the thing. So like, just, just look at the, read the description, read why it happens and how the floating point precision works. This is per spec. This is the interesting bit. So this is according to the specification and uh, it works basically as expected. And if you get anything else, then this is not a floating point spec. So this is kind of very interesting. Okay, um, I just thought I would highlight it. Right, the next thing we got is JavaScript equality table game. Test your JavaScript knowledge or the things that you should never write in a real code. Uh, it looks like a Minesweeper and you can actually just, you know, pick whatever, you know, you think will not be correct, right? So the equality. And then you just show results and it will tell you which ones you guessed correct. So... Test your JavaScript knowledge and never ever write your code like with, you know, false equals zero and stuff like this. Please don't do that. That is a not very good, but it is a nice brain teaser basically. And uh, maybe you didn't know about that. Um, quite nice entertainment basically. Okay, next thing we got is this uh, serious pro tip I wish I had internalized in my teens, early twenties. And I think, yes, even in my late 20s, I would probably be a good thing to know. Finish things. Uh, this is like a pretty serious tip. And this is something that I think it took me way too long to understand. Is that, yes, starting projects is easy. Shipping projects and finishing projects is really, really important, not just because you know, you kind of finish and close it is also part of it, but also because there are some things that you will only learn if you finish something and if you ship it and if you actually go this, you know, additional steps after shipping, maintenance and all that kind of stuff. And unless you do that, there are some things that you will never even experience. Uh, not even talking about software development here. I, like, I think it applies to a lot more things. So. 
if you still haven't finished anything, if you still haven't shipped stuff and haven't maintained even a tiniest library if I'm talking about programming, just finish it. Just ship it and maintain it for a few weeks, days, hours. That will teach you a lot more than you could imagine, actually, to be honest. So, you know, just, just do it. Just finish it. Um, yeah. Like the pain of customer support, uh, not even that. Like this is obviously one of the things that you would get. Uh, customer support is yeah something that you know if you if you build a library and if you're lucky if someone uses it, you will know about that. But even without customers just delivering something, you will learn a lot more about the whole process than you would just by you know starting and and keeping it on your hard drive. Let's just put it this way. Okay, last thing we got here is a bit of a um, crazy thing to think about. I'm not sure how exactly it works, but here's a tweet. Today I learned some barcode scanners set their configuration parameters with barcodes. How much chaos you could cause if you replace some book barcodes with this? And there's a couple of images attached. There's the barcode setup that basically uh, do things like restore defaults, high tone, low tone, uh, change the baud rate on the device and uh, stop specific bits and um, yeah. So the question I have in this case is, um, is the barcode scanners always in the setup mode or do you have to specifically do something to enter into the setup mode? Because if the barcode scanner is always in the setup mode and always accepts those setups barcodes, then just going into the bookshop and you know sticking those barcodes on random books could literally bring a shop into chaos. It's just insane. On the other hand, if there's a special button you need to press to turn it into you know like a setup mode or whatever, then it will be less painful. That will be very interesting to know about how exactly does it works. And there's a talk from a DEFCON about this. Of course, there is. So yes, if you're interested in, in stuff like this, do check it out. This seems to be pretty amusing. The thread itself is also have some very interesting information. Okay, um, that's it from my side. That's basically all I have for today's podcast. So if you guys have anything else you think that I might have missed or you want me to cover today or you have any questions or you have any suggestions or whatever, you have your own libraries, do send them in the chat right now. If not, well, we can wrap it up here for today and go enjoy our uh, rest of the weekend. Um, yeah, uh, great stuff as always. I do appreciate your work. Thank you and good luck with the mosquito fight. Oh yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> uh, super useful as always. Thank you. Thank you guys for your support. Um, okay, seems like no more questions, no more suggestions. Stupid mos... It it's set on my microphone. I cannot even hit it now just mocking me at this point. You little son of a... Okay, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, thank you. I mean, I'm almost almost good, as you probably can hear, you know, at least I can think straight right now, which is always a plus. Um, but yeah, just I think one more day and I'm gonna be good. Okay, thank you guys very much for watching. Thank you for listening. Thank you uh, for your support as always. Um, as usual, if you have any cool news articles, do send them over my way through the Twitter, Discord, GitHub, whatever. Uh, as usual, you can find all the links mentioned on the GitHub. The link is in the description. 
yeah, uh, have an awesome rest of the weekend. Or if you're watching this as a VOD on YouTube or listening to this on the Castbox or on Dev2, have an awesome rest of the week. And I see you next time. Bye.